ask you uh, this question. Where are you going in the future? Where, where are you going to be? What is, uh, what is going to be your final resting spot? After all that's transpired in your life, where are you going to alight? Where are you going to land? In other words, what is going to be your eternal state of affairs? You see, after all of these peaks in God's prophetic mountain range, we're led to the final one, which caps it off. It's the eternal state of people. Where will yours be? One option is heaven, and that's wonderful. And though perhaps all dogs go to heaven, um, I don't think we could say that of people. You see, a number will be judged by the Lord Jesus at this preceding event, the white throne judgment. And those who all along have refused uh, the pardon which he has freely offered, well, they will be spending their, think of it, eternity, uh, not in heaven, but in a place called hell. It is a reality, and I must tell you that even if I mention the word, it makes me a little uncomfortable because of its sound. Just its sound. It's coarse. It's a little offensive. It's hard to the ear. And so as a result, I don't think we like to talk about it, but it is a reality. It is going to be an alternative eternal state for those who have not gained entrance into heaven based on their faith in the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that the very people who don't mind talking about heaven, uh, many would prefer no conversation whatsoever about hell. But it's a package deal. The Bible addresses both alternatives in eternity, both heaven and hell. Of course, many say this is inconsistent with a loving God, and those are folks who have felt the permission to extract uh, from all of God's perfections one of his characteristics. They like the fact that God is good or that God is loving, of course, for good reason, so do I. But they eliminate the fact that God is also holy. Therefore, will judge unrighteousness and sin. And so, yes, there is a good God, but he's also holy and he must respond to human sin. And that particular response is made very, very real and dramatic in a place called hell. Now, I'm not making this up, you understand. The Bible tells us about it. Here, for instance, is one of those places where the reality of hell is made clear. It's Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. And here's what it says, dealing out retribution. You see, that's what this good, yet holy God is going to do. It's judgment. It's recompense. Dealing out retribution to whom? Well, 
to those who do not know God, and it's the same group of people, but they're addressed in two different ways, to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Is the gospel something to be obeyed? Well, yeah, it is. If you think of obedience as something or someone you submit to, So those who refuse to submit to the gospel will receive retribution uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you find it a little bit of a mystery that anyone would refuse to yield to the gospel? It's good news. That's what the word means. It's good news uh, that we don't have to save ourselves, but that salvation has been obtained for us based upon Uh, the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's good news. You would think all of us would run to that message rather than running away from it. Why would it be that some would not obey it and submit to it? Why did we resist, perhaps, for so long? You know, the gospel says we can't save ourselves. And I must tell you, that's a rather repulsive message to prideful men and women. We would love to think that there is sufficient virtue and goodnesses in our own life that I don't need to depend on salvation provided for me. I could obtain it based on my own merits. And so, really, there is lots of resistance to the gospel message. The good news message has to be preceded by the very bad news that we are spiritually impoverished. I don't want to know that. I would rather have you tell me I'm a good person by nature. But the gospel tells me, no, you're inclined to sin by nature. And no matter how good you think you are, and even though you may be gooder than the ones around you, you ain't good enough to be worthy of righteousness in the eyes of a perfect God. And so he has provided salvation for you. And so... Second uh, Thessalonians tells us clearly that God will deal out retribution to those who've refused to yield to the gospel, which leads me to this thought. Uh, tell me if you buy it. Uh, those who are sentenced to hell are not sentenced because they are sinners. What do you think about that? Well, you don't have to yell anything out right now. That's why God created email. But I I thought about this. I'd like you to think about it. Those who are sentenced to hell are not sentenced to hell because they are sinners. Those who are sentenced to hell have refused to submit to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Sin is not the problem. Refusal to take his salvation as the solution to our sin, that's the problem, you see. And then the passage in Second Thessalonians also said that God will deal out retribution to those who do not know him. But how could they know him if they had no opportunity to know him? But, oh no, the knowing of these people is not for lack of opportunity. It is deliberate. And once again, don't you find it to be rather puzzling that anyone created, made in the image of God would resist a relationship with him? No, I I don't find it so puzzling. Look, do you know the closer you get in a relationship to God, the more you realize what a worm you are? 
I don't know how else to put it, but I mean, stacked up alongside of his perfections. Oh my goodness, it is not a very pretty picture. And so if I draw near to the one true God, I have to admit that I ain't he. And in essence, we don't like that because we want to be the masters of our own destiny. We're all on a quest for autonomy. That is to say, independence from God. And so the most people will acknowledge the existence of God. They don't know him. For to know him is to know a whole lot about yourself. And we don't want to know a lot about ourselves. And so God will deal out retribution to those who don't obey the gospel and to those who do not know God. And so these are ones who, uh, by personal choice, are estranged from God. And the eternal sentence reserved for these folks, don't you see, is the very estrangement which they have already chosen. It's not as if God arbitrarily and whimsically is imposing this upon them. He is giving them the logical extension, don't you see, of what they have chosen now. If one has chosen estrangement from God instead of communion and intimacy, then God will let that be carried out according to the desire of that person throughout eternity. If one chooses estrangement from God now... Uh, at the great white throne judgment, it's too late then to do anything about it. And so that person's eternal state is, in fact, hell. We could even find out more specifically and precisely about what hell is like. It's in the very next verse, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. These, the ones addressed in verse 8, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Think about it. If heaven is the eternal presence of God, then it's understandable that hell is the eternal absence of God. And that's what we're reading about here. The eternal absence of God. And so the sentence upon those who have refused the gospel is one of eternal destruction. And you know, that's kind of a contradiction in terms if you think about it. E eternal, never-ending, but destruction. Look, if something is destroyed, it's destroyed. It's an event. That's it. If something is torn down and destroyed, it happens, it's over and done with. Yet preceding that event is this word indicating a process, eternal destruction. In other words, uh, they shall always be dying, yet never die. Eternally will unfold the process of being destroyed. Always dying, yet never even experiencing the relief of getting over it. An eternal process of destruction and dying. And so the penalty for refusing the pardon offered us freely by Christ Jesus, the penalty is not termination of being, as some say. They call it annihilationism. You die and that's it. You're annihilated. Baloney. We're created in the image of God. He's eternal and he's bequeathed to us an eternal character as well. The issue is where one spends his eternity. 
And so there's eternal destruction, uh, but not termination of being. Hell is not the state of non-being. It is the state of eternal destruction. It is the state of eternal conscious suffering. Now, folks, I mentioned we were created in the image of God, meaning he created us with a purpose. And I think, to make it simple, it's a twofold purpose. It is to relate to him personally and then to represent and reflect him publicly. That's the purpose for which we have been created. Hell is hell because this fundamental purpose for which we have been given life, the purpose for which we have been created, cannot be fulfilled in hell. Can you imagine the dissatisfaction, the sense of eternal conscious dissatisfaction created in the image of God to know him privately in order to represent and reflect him uh, publicly and yet the accomplishment of that life's purpose is entirely out of reach. It will never be attained to. It's hell. It's eternal dissatisfaction of one's fundamental purpose for living. You've experienced dissatisfaction. So have I. But can you imagine it being without end? That's hell. It's forever. And do you know there's nothing at that point anyone could do about it? A person can repent and reverse his ruin here, but he cannot reverse his ruin in hell. I beseech you to get it right now while the chance remains. It's serious. What torment will be experienced by those sentenced to hell? Forever. A sense, a conscious sense of a wasted life. Forever. A conscious sense of wasted opportunity. Forever. An unending sense of failure. It's hellacious. It is hell, don't you see? In fact, the Bible speaks of hell in the metaphor of fire. It's the imagery of fire. Hell in the Bible is referred to as the place of unquenchable fire. Fire that does not abate. It continues. It is not extinguished. It suggests eternal agony, don't you see, and torment. The fire is eternal. Therefore, it is not extinguished. It is the place hell is the place of unquenchable fire. The Lord told us about it. These are his words. Mark 9, 47, 48. If your eye, remember when he said this? If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. See it? Unquenchable fire. We visited Israel recently, and many of you have on other occasions. If you're in the old city of Jerusalem, which is elevated, and you look south, there's a valley. And it's called the Hinnom, Hinnom Valley. It's a place 
where today there are concerts and people strolling. Um, it looks like a well-manicured garden, but that doesn't really reflect all the horrors that took place uh, over the history of Israel in the Hinnom Valley. Child sacrifice and all kinds of horrific things. One of the distinguishing factors of the Hinnom Valley was that it was for many years the official garbage dump of the entire city of Jerusalem. In fact, there was a certain gate through which the dung gate, through which, that's what it's called, through which the garbage of the city was transported out of the city and dumped in the Hinnom Valley. Lots and lots of garbage produced by the residents of the city of Jerusalem. And it was set on fire. But the fires were unquenchable because the garbage kept coming. And so can you imagine the smell? Can you imagine the influx of flies and of maggots and the smoke and, well, worms? constantly there in order to feed on the garbage. You're familiar with the Greek word, the word Gehenna? It's a Greek word. It's used as a symbol of hell, isn't it? Gehenna. Well, it comes from uh, this phrase, the Hinnom Valley. Gehinnom. From this terribly horrific place of worms and maggots and smells and smoke and unquenchable fire was developed the symbolic word Gehenna, a representation of hell. And the Lord told us it's a place where their worm does not die. It will eat forever in heaven. There will be, in hell, excuse me, there will be a constant and conscious gnawing away of one's conscience. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine the voice of your condemning conscience screaming out at you forever? Folks, we can hardly live with it now. How many sleepless nights have you spent because of the voice of your conscience reminding you that you have transgressed. Can you imagine the voice of your conscience screaming out at you throughout eternity and you have no means by which you can turn it off? It's like the worm consciously devouring your sense of wellness. There is no sense of wellness. Just the screaming, amplified voice of a guilty conscience crying out at you without abatement throughout eternity. It is hell. And it's no wonder, therefore, that hell is described as that place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, the people there will weep because of intense and unending sorrow. And the people there will gnash their teeth because of intense and unending anger. But who, who will they be angry at? They'll be angry at Satan. They'll be angry at God. They'll be angry at themselves. They will be angry at everybody and everything. And you know what that's like when you're miserable. And there's no rest for your soul. You're angry. 
And there they will be unendingly and intensely angry as is indicated by the gnashing of their teeth. And just as the blessing of heaven is eternal, so too is the penalty of hell. It is eternal. How could a good and loving God do this? You know what's interesting to me? The ones who ask that question, how could a good and loving God do this? Don't have any problem with a judge sentencing a mass murderer to execution. I never hear them questioning the sentencing uh, by the judge with regard uh, to the murderous activity of this criminal. And yet they cry out against God. How could you, if you're so good and loving, do this? You know why people don't ask this of the judge? Because they know the judge is not responsible. They know the criminal brought it upon himself. They know the judge is just carrying out what is required. But do you know sin is a criminal assault against the holiness of God? Do you know sin is an attempt to murder? That is to extinguish the very presence, reality, and intensely holy character of God. Do you know that sin is a crime against divinity? It's an attempt to ignore it and to minimize it and to contain it and to refuse to live according to it. And do you know that the sinner in the eyes of Almighty God is a criminal? And do you know that that particular criminal is responsible for his assignment uh, to hell because he committed crimes against divinity, crimes against the holiness of God. Therefore, when we question God uh, for hell, I think our revulsion with the notion of hell says more about us than it does about God. You know what it says about us? It says we underestimate the holiness of God. But our sin is a horrific affront to the holiness of God. Therefore, a holy God must judge us for it. Why doesn't he just look the other way? Why doesn't he grade on a curve? But don't you see, if God looked the other way, we could no longer consider him to be holy, could we? It would be a compromise and a diminishment of his holy character. For God to remain holy, he must judge sin. You know what the problem is? Holiness, let's just face it, is just not that important to us. But I have to tell you, God's holiness is very important to him. Therefore, his wrath is an expression of his love for holiness. God's wrath is an expression of his intense love for his own holiness. And so, did you know when we sin, we are doing what God hates? Not the one who sinned, but the activity of sinning. When we sin, we're doing the very thing that God hates. And so, this puts us, don't you see, in a very precarious, in a very dangerous spot. What can we do? We can submit to what a holy 
and loving God has provided for us. Make no mistake about it, he has. Here's what he's provided to sum it up. Romans 5 verse 9 tells us, much more than having now been justified, it's a legal pronouncement, case dismissed. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That's the Lord Jesus. If you're a saved person, have you ever asked the question, what are you saved from? Could I tell you a kind of a weird thing? Um, if you're saved, uh, God has saved you from himself. Uh, God saved you uh, from himself through the sacrifice of himself. You got saved from the holy wrath of God. You got saved from the justifiable wrath of God. If you are saved, you got saved from God himself through the sacrifice of God himself. Do you see it? Much more than having now been justified by my merits, by my New Year's resolution, by my by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We are saved from God himself <laughs> through the sacrifice of God himself in the form of Jesus Christ, the Son of God on the cross. But I must tell you, God's love spurned results in God's severe judgment. That's the way it is. Spurning God's eternal love results in God's eternal punishment. That's called hell. The one, therefore, who spurns God's love cannot blame God for hell because the one who has spurned God's love has put himself there. God, I beseech you, don't do it. Don't cheapen either the holiness of God nor his love. You know, he satisfied both on the cross. He died. That satisfied his justice. He died for you and me. That satisfied his love. See it? So when Jesus was impaled upon the cross, you can imagine his outstretched arms balancing out both the justice of God and the love of God. The justice of God. He died. The love of God. He died in our place. Don't spurn either the holiness or love of God. Ruination of an eternal kind cannot be reversed here. It can only be reversed now. Could I just uh, offer these simple words? Come to Jesus and you will go to heaven forever. Don't make it complicated. Come to Jesus and you will go to heaven forever. Come to Jesus, and hell will not be your eternal state. Don't make it complicated. Come to Jesus. Lord in heaven, in order for one to do so, it requires your work and grace and enablement. And that's what we pray even here tonight. 
that for the ones who have taken you for granted and who have up until now refused your pardon, for those who have chosen to forsake the opportunity to know you, for those who have refused to submit to the gospel and who are seeking to live according to their own merits, we pray you would just overwhelm them with such a heavy sense of conviction for criminal behavior, for sin, for the doing of that which you hate, that in his or her own way they would say to you, I come to you, Lord Jesus, as my personal Savior. Now come into me and lead me to heaven forevermore. I want that to be my eternal state and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.